I was completely equivocal about this. And, and my background is in academic public health and, uh, and public health practice. I'm a professor of public health. I'm, I'm on the National Institute of Clinical Excellence um, uh, Review Committee. So I'm familiar with how to review evidence. So the journey that my intrinsic position was, was one of, um, I don't know. And rather than having a, a sort of blinding insight from looking at the literature, I've had this sort of progressive corrosion of my confidence in, in this process and increasing concerns about its viability and also its, its impact. And you are absolutely right about the marginalisation of not just MEDACT, but of any body or individual who takes a contrary view. That's really concerning from an ethical and, and, and political point of view. And I, without wanting to personalise this, um, I don't consider myself to be a swivel-eyed lunatic. You know, that, that may be one description, but I think I'm a fairly rational person. But I've been described at meetings with senior public health staff when I've given what I think to be a, a rational interpretation of the literature be described to the audience as a local character. They, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a clear background theme to that. You know, they're dismissing me as, as, as a lunatic. Um, and, it, and you mentioned about air pollution earlier, David. There's a thing in the Times today about one third of strokes are linked to particulates in, in air. And the Times has um, a very informed and intelligent position <coughs> on air quality. And it, and it has a very vigorous campaign to improve cycling and, and, and walking and you know, non-vehicle traffic. Its position on fracking is, is far less rational, in, in my opinion. And you know, MEDAC was rubbished in the Times. Um, certain members who, who contributed to the report were rubbished in the Times. And that's deeply concerning. So it, it is critical that David's got a very, um, a very reassuring delivery style <laughs> and a very rational delivery style. Um, and that's a personal characteristic. Uh, and, but it's also critical that that's reflected in what we produce. Um, and, you know, I get a feeling that we are starting to change it, what starting to influence opinion, certainly in the professional public health world. And we've just we've got to accept that, you know, these things are going to be used against us. But we will just be rational and calm and collective. So it's a it's a really, really important point. Shall I uh, shall I kick off, Alice? What what time are we due to, to break? Twelve thirty, okay. So I'll I'll speed it up a little bit. We'll, we'll eat into lunch if that's all right, yeah, okay. Right, okay. Um, risks to human health and, and well-being. Right, so I'm going to be talking about um, exposures and, and hazards, their, their relationship to health and well-being. So not just clinical health. You know, health is much, much broader than, than, than just not being ill and principally through exposures via the remains of air and, uh, and water. The impacts 
at a number of levels, residential populations, occupational, individual and population effects, chemical, physical, social and economic effects. So I am going to have to condense um, our findings and, and our interpretations quite considerably. And, and, and these views, um, these are, I'm not speaking on behalf of MEDACT here. Um, I, I, I've been leading a systematic review of the literature arranged um, around fracking, for want of a, a better term. And we, after 15 months, and, and you're right, David, it, it, you know, this, has, this has been um, conducted during weekends and evenings. And, and my wife has sent a personal thank you to you because it saved multiple weekends of having to entertain me. Um, but we have done it in a scientific, we have done it in a legitimate scientific way. It will be published. It's virtually in press now. We're in the, 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 the fight in the, we're in, I suppose, the stage that you know, Murray Walker famously once said, we're into lap 53, the penultimate last lap but one. And, that, and that's where we are now. We're, we're just um, tidying it up. But, you know, ev evidence... I, I worked with him in, in, in the NHS. I've worked in local government and I've worked in, in academia. And you know, I believe in evidence. It's, it, 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 it sounds like motherhood and apple pie. Sometimes, though, the obsession or fetish with evidence, particularly in the NHS, can actually act as a break on things that are intuitively a good thing to do. So for some things, you know, why do we need evidence? You know, to use a local example from where I come from, in the Victorian era, the Chamberlains damned mid-Wales, not cursed, <laughs> damned mid-Wales, to bring clean drinking water to the working classes of Birmingham by the power of gravity in a huge civil engineering triumph. What was the evidence that that was going to be good for public health? There was absolutely no evidence at all in terms of, of how we understand it. In fact, it's very unlikely now that such a project would actually pass the benchmark that we, we've established now for an acceptable level of evidence. So sometimes, you, you have to, if the evidence is not there, or if the evidence is not strong enough, then we also have to rely upon first principles, and David alluded to some of those some first principles, and also experience. And it was fascinating to listen to you, sir, talking about your experience as a, as a coal miner. Um, and, and we need to use those experiences, and that's what we've tried to do. OK, well, the first thing that... Um, and some of you will have, have, have heard me rattle on about this before, so apologies. But the first thing to do is, is for us to understand the difference between hazard and risk. And that's critical to this discussion, because that's how... Um, interests that are promoting fracking um, would actually challenge you on the basis that we're talking about hazards rather than risks. Because hazards are so what, really? It's risks that are important. Uh, we know that there are multiple toxins and carcinogens and mutagens that are either used in the fracking process or generated by the fracking process. Uh, process. There's clear evidence of, the, of that. However, without a plausible pathway, these, no matter how toxic, will remain a hazard as opposed to a risk. Now, a hazard requires monitoring to make sure it's not turning into a risk. A risk, and this is where we have to think carefully about this, this development, 
a, a risk requires an intervention either to prevent it or to reduce it to an acceptable level. Now that's an important statement though, to an acceptable, you know, what's an acceptable level of risk in relationship to shale gas? You know, that's, that, that's something that is, is, is fluid at, at, at the moment. And, and to use an analogy, if um, this would be hugely amusing if it was true. If I have a, a cup of hot coffee here, that's a hazard. The intrinsic hazard is that it's 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 a body of scalding water. Okay, that's very very high hazard. The risk is if I go over to David and pour it over him. Now that would be of great amusement to the audience, I'm I'm sure. But it's very very unlikely. So it's a high hazard and low risk. So. You know, you could argue, I, I've done a lot of work on cement kilns, which increasingly use waste materials to, to replace fossil fuels. So they use highly toxic chemicals, you know, waste oil solvents, what have you, and they burn them to smithereens. You know, it's 1400 degrees centigrade. So it's a high hazard because they've got these toxins going in, but it's virtually no risk. It's a, it's a self-contained system and it destroys these things um, because of the high temperature and, and, and time relationship. And if something is a risk, the level of that risk in relationship to this industry is influenced by a range of factors, of course, which makes it so much more challenging to, to assess the rate of release, where the stuff is going, what happens to it, what does it break down to, you know, does it interact with other chemicals to produce even more toxic children, um, how long it's hanging about, human behaviour, and the frequency and duration of those exposures. And all industrial processes produce hazards and produce risks. In this case, they derive from every stage of the process life cycle, from you know, uh, the preparation of the site uh, and exploratory drilling, right through to, you know, to decommissioning and the consequences of, of, of you know, the legacy of you know, obsolete sites and, and, uh, and infrastructure. And even without going into the literature in a, in a systematic way, there's lots of material around showing that there are releases to air, land and water, and that's inevitable, you know, that's, that's going to happen. Now we've actually got a quite a good understanding of air chemistry and soil chemistry, a very sound understanding. Um, with water chemistry, then there's much less certainty now about, you know, not only are things getting into the water as a result of this industry, but we don't understand what's happening to these chemicals once they're in that system. We can, we can work that out um, from existing research in terms of air and land, but not with water, which is another area, of course, of uncertainty. Okay. Now, in terms of, uh, of air quality, we'll get local releases. You know, th th this is an industry that, in, ter in environmental terms, will have a local and a regional a national and international impact and all of those are in are important and you know, locally 
just the nature of how this industry is conducted. We're going to get releases of pollutants such as diesel exhaust, and of course they're you know, a, a large source of, of, of particulate matters, which, um, which is linked with a whole host of diseases, oxides of nitrogen, again, now thought to be responsible for something in the region of 11,000 deaths a year in, in, in the UK. Uh, um, particulate matter, silica from transport and site equipment, the release of fracturing fluids and waste through spills, leaks and accidents. And that's not surprising. You know, this, this stuff uses large quantities of materials. And between nine, a range of, this is in the literature, nine, between nine and 80% of the contaminated fracking fluid could, resur could resurface following each fracking event. And most estimates are around 35%. But that's telling you something, between nine and 80%, and that's in the academic literature. And, uh, and David was referring to the, you know, the inherent uncertainties uh, around this industry. I and mean, it's a huge range. You know, it's a... Uh, an order of magnitude. Uh, and in terms of um, international effects, and Alan's going to be talking about um, global warming um, later, you know, regional effects, these chemicals, uh, oxides of nitrogen and, and, and the volatile organic uh, compounds, are precursors for ozone formation, which in itself is a, is, 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 is a greenhouse gas, but also has a direct impact on, on, on human health. Right, so what we've done, we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of papers, and Alice has as well, and David has, and we've done this properly, you know, we, we, we've done it according to good practice, you know, and not just one person reviewing each paper, but two people reviewing, you know, a large proportion of those papers, the literature search has been conducted by more than one individual and differences been been reconciled. And in terms of exposure, we've included 60, that may change slightly before publication, but we reviewed 60 peer-reviewed papers on exposure. And I'm, I'm hesitant to do this, but I have. Um, 50% of those papers, 50% and 28% respectively, indicate a plausible or potential exposure. So what, 78% either a probable exposure or definite exposure or, or potential for it. And I think well, initially you think, well, wow, that, that's really, really important and that's telling us something. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, it's telling us about a general sort of um, direction of, of, of travel. However, in epidemiological terms, this is a tiny crop of papers. Uh, and, and this is something that we, you know, this is an industry that's been you know, very intense in some parts of the world and has been going on for, for many, many years, decades. And that's it. And we're making decisions on, on this enormous change in the fossil fuel economy on the basis of 60 peer-reviewed papers on, ex on exposure. I mean, it's pitiful, really. And not only is it modest in terms of size, it's modest in terms of quality as well. In some cases, it's a bit embarrassing. Um, there's enormous variability in the methods used. Some papers are measuring um, pollutants in air and water, others are modelling. Um, 
Some are using distance as a proxy for exposure. You know, so the closer you live to the plant, the more exposed you're likely to be. Well, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And it depends on the, which way the wind's blowing and other things. Um, but that difference means that you can't, you can't bring the data from the different studies together. Now, in a classic systematic review, that's what you'd be doing. And it's called a meta-analysis. So then you massively increase the statistical reliability of the, of, the, of the conclusions. We can't do that here. What the literature is showing, though, is that, firstly, there are thousands, thousands of, of reported contraventions. So this is from the existing industry, largely from, from, from the States. Now bear in mind that, that most of these contraventions will actually be reported by the industry. Some of them will be fairly minor. So there's huge potential for underreporting. So they'll be reported by the industry or they'll be identified by the regulators. And, and some of these figures <coughs> you know, are really appear ostensibly to be sort of eye-watering. Um, analysis of, um, of data from 41,000 wells 2000 to 2012 in the States found that fracking wells were six times more likely to have structural problems affecting the cement and casings, which is exactly the sort of thing David was, was talking about. So that's a potential, that's a hazard. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a risk. Um, a study of, I think it's six countries, but an international study, so using international data, and well barrier integrity failure rates in the industry of up to 75%. Um, they, those are quite worrying statistics when you fir first hear them. If you put them in the context, though, of the scale of the industry, then they start to become much smaller. And, 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 and that's one of the things the industry will, 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 will take because they'll say, yes, these things happen. But in the great scheme of things, it's immaterial because there are many hundreds of thousands of fracking events. So this is relatively small beer, and I, I don't agree with that. Um, the other issue with um, the exposure papers is that it's, there are certain chemical groups that you should plausibly be, be looking for, but it's really important, and we've done this with other air quality issues, we can identify with considerable confidence um, what are the principal sources of NOx, NO2, and particulate matter. With great confidence internationally. We can't do that here because a handful of the studies use source apportionment, which is where you actually you can link the chemical in the environmental medium to uh, a fracking installation. Some of those show a relationship, some of them don't. Right, um, now this is a crude proxy for exposure, residential um, distance, but again, there is a theme in the literature. The majority of those studies using residential distance as a proxy for airborne exposure, largely report and not just an, in, an increased exposure risk, but they report an increasing exposure risk the closer you get to the site. And so it's sort of supporting the idea of a sort of a dose-response relationship. So the closer you live, the more exposed you are likely to be. 
that um, David um, hinted at some of the geological studies, uh, and I've read those papers, uh, and I find them extraordinarily challenging. And some of them indicate that there is a plausible mechanism for um, shale fluids or the, hydra the, 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 um, the hydraulic uh, fracturing fluids. There's a plausible mechanism for that migrating to low-lying um, aquifers. And then there are others which use the principles of geology and physics to say exactly the opposite and, 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 um, uh, and quite plausibly so. There are very few before and after studies. And again, this is so disappointing given how long this, this, intense, this intensive phase of, of hydraulic fracking is being go going on for. Um, and you'd think, you know, on first principles, you do some background sampling of the environment before the plant's established, and then you do the same after it to see whether anything's changed. And in fact, you know, by and large, that hasn't happened. And there's at least one paper which has used the data from um, environmental um, media around existing sites as pre-drilling data for a proposed site on the basis that there are so many wells in this area that that actually constitutes, the existing data constitutes <laughs> pre-drilling data, which tells you another thing here. And that is the risk is going to be dependent on the scale and the intensity of the industry. Trying to build a public health case strong enough to say on a single site, on a single well, that this is going to have a really, really profound impact on, on health, that's going to fall because the evidence just isn't strong enough. But there's, there's a thing here about multiplication and, and my reading of the literature is that you know, once you get to a that there's a critical point where the consequences of this industry suddenly accelerate. The ones that were particularly interesting to me were the occupational studies because there's very few of them, there's, there's, there's a handful of, uh, of those, but they're strong because the, these are people who are working on the site and they also use personal monitoring data, not just data out in the environment. You know, air quality is important, but if you're indoors most of the day, then it's not going to be so significant. Or, you know, you might work you know, 20 miles away, you might get the train to work, so that you're not going to be exposed. And S. Vine in particular, he, he, he's done a couple of really impressive studies. And in one, 111 personal breathing zone samples. So, so these are monitors actually on the workers. Um, and he, he, he's interested, he's a respiratory physician, he was interested in, in lung cancer and, and, and silicosis due to exposure to silica used in the frac sand. And he found that most of those samples exceeded occupational standards, some of them by a factor of 20, um, at such a level, that the, the latter at such a level that it would overwhelm the respiratory protection that would conventionally be worn. Now that, that's of, of concern. Um, he also looked at, in another study, personal breathing zone data and urine samples. So now we've got some biological data, which is really, really important. 
that found benzene levels at or in excess of occupational standards. Now that's really important for, for a number of reasons because uh, the industry and the, uh, and the regulators will, and quite rightly, they, 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 will, um, they will position themselves on the basis that yes, but this is predictable. You know, you can conduct a risk assessment beforehand and you can introduce a series of working practices and uh, personal protective gear to either manage that risk or, or prevent it. And yes, that's, that's plausible, but that of course is dependent on, on the quality and, and the resource available, both to management and critically to regulators. But there's another important factor here, that you know, benzene is a genotoxic carcinogen. There's no safe level of exposure. So the, 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 the current uh, air quality standard for, for, for benzene ambient air is, is based on what is technically feasible for us to do, because inevitably we're going to be exposed to benzene. So then we start asking ourselves question, well, do we, want, do we actually want to add to anybody's benzene exposure, given the fact that it is such a dangerous chemical? Right, in terms of health, We've gone from 60 papers to 22 on health. And some of these are um, really, uh, they're, they're comedy papers in, in, in terms of research quality. 68% report an impact. And in a way, it's a meaningless figure, really. 68% of 22 papers. Um, some of them are very, very poor quality compromised by exposure misclassification, so wrongly identifying people who, who are considered to be exposed uh, and actually missing people who really are exposed. Inherent bias, statistical unreliability because of the small numbers, and in some cases, and I'll, I'll come on to this in a minute, highly questionable plausibility about the conditions that are alleged to be associated with, with, with fracking. These are probably the better studies, the best studies of the crop. There's, there are five studies, four of which are very large, um, using clinically confirmed health outcomes. So these are confirmed diagnoses. These aren't people saying, I don't feel very well. And they make very interesting reading. Um, because four of, that, four of those report a, a statistically significant relationship between an adverse health outcome and proximity to, to um, a fracking industry. One, don't, one doesn't. What was particularly in interesting to me, and it's because of my um, research background, I suppose, the, the, the three largest cohorts looked at reproduct adverse reproductive outcomes. So congenital anomalies, low birth weight, for, uh, small for gestational age, um, a preterm <coughs> birth. And they show a highly significant relationship with, um, with um, proximity to, to, uh, to the industry. That's plausible. As my research background <coughs> is, is in increased risk of, of adverse reproductive outcomes and maternal um, 
proximity to certain types of landfill sites and exposure to um, chlorinated hydrocarbons. And there's a plausibility, there's a biological plausibility to that. You know, particularly in terms of exposure at certain times during, the, you know, in, certainly in the first trimester of the uh, of the pregnancy. So that's that's relatively compelling, but it's a tiny number of studies, very very large, um, very large samples, up to 125,000 women in 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 one of those studies, but no exposure data. You know, just use it's just using proximity. There's no actual exposure, so you can't make a definitive judgment on, on, on that basis. The one study in that crop which was reassuring is also interesting because it uses something called standardised incidence uh, ratios and you know, it's tremendously boring for most of you. Um, now you shouldn't compare those. That, that's a, a statistical no-no. You don't compare those. And they say that in the paper and then go on to compare them and come up with some very reassuring results, despite the fact they do actually find one that's significantly increased. And, and, and that paper's funded by, by industry. Now, academics don't lie. Seriously, well, actually, one or two do, don't they? But, but by and large, academics don't lie. But, you know, you do need to be aware of, you know, who's funding the, the work, because of course it's going to, when, when you're in this sort of world in particular, where you're having to make fine judgments and, you know, you could, tip either way, then perhaps that's in influencing people's outcomes. Five studies use self-reported symptoms, and by and large, these are very poor quality and very difficult to be taken seriously when studies are reporting that individuals uh, are experiencing 111 individual symptoms when um, there are local activists who are recruiting participants to the study and things like vitamin D deficiency is being linked to proximity to, to fracking wells. So what they are useful for, though, is, is in terms of what people feel their lives are like living in this environment. Um, some of it will be predicated by individual disputes because there are, at least one of these studies is hopelessly biased by the fact that most of the people they recruited were in active litigation against the company. But there are some really compelling stories there about, you said, David, about the sleeplessness and, and the irritation and the concern and you know, the, the erosion of their, of their property value. You know, for most people, um, their house is the most important and only capital asset. Now, if you start to see the value of that being eroded and you're thinking, all oh, the kids are going to have this, you know, if that doesn't make you sick, it might make you clinical, clinically ill, but it's certainly going to make you feel very, very miserable. And you know, I think all of us here would accept that, that that's a fundamental element of, of, of public health. Six of these studies used um, hazard indices, which are statistical tools used for estimating risk. Um, and and some, some of those, indi those indices are a bit they're quite controversial, so at least one of them is not really accepted as good practice in, in the UK. Uh, f four of those reported an effect. One was suggestive and, and two were reassuring. The only one of those studies that used exposure data or, or used exposure measures was one of these two that were reassuring, which again makes it, you know, we, we have to be honest 
and, and, and straightforward about what the liter literature is actually telling us because it, it, it's not showing an overwhelming um, result either way. Okay, um, social and economic. Virtually all of those papers report an impact. There, there is a lot of industry-funded material in the grey literature, so not in the peer-reviewed literature, which is very, very supportive. Um, but in the academic literature, that, that stuff's been reviewed and has been described as being, you know, hope, what's the wording? Let me just, I think I made a note of the wording. Um, Well, I thought I had. Oh, yeah. Oh, overwhelmingly supportive and overstated. Um, and David talked about national sacrifice zones, which is one of those terms that makes your heart sink, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it is actually a legitimate term. It's a bit like you and epidemiologists talk about harvesting, harvesting deaths, you know, which is when, when people are dying because of air quality, for example, perhaps a week or two weeks or a month sooner than they would have done otherwise. And they, they refer to that as harvesting, um, which seems a particularly cruel and inappropriate way of, of discussing it. But what the, what the experience of the States is telling us is that, you know, that, that this resource curse where you know, local economies become dominated by an extractive industry, it suppresses other local enterprises because there's pretty much full employment, albeit low paid, so there's no incentive for other businesses to, to develop. And when the inevitable bust comes, those communities suffer considerably. And we're starting to see some examples of that associated with the, the sudden increase in fracking and then its very rapid decline. But also, and I thought this was quite interesting, there's, there's one, um, very elegant review which talked about the redistribution of, of the environmental injustices which were historically associated with national sacrifice zones like the Appalachians to more affluent areas was creating profound social, cultural and economic shops, shocks for middle class communities losing control over their, envir over their environments. Now, that, that's, that's important. I know that you know, probably most of us here in this room are, are committed to reducing inequalities and, and, and we're used to deprive people uh, having an, an unfair burden of, of ill health but you know this fits in exactly with Marmot's idea of proportionate universalism you know we want to improve everybody's health we want to protect everybody's health but we also at the same time want to reduce that gap um, and if that's happening which it seems to be that is not just an inequality that's an injustice and I think as public health people, we have a duty to, to speak out on that. And in terms of the economic stuff, again, David alluded to some of this. That, I mean, it's clear that um, national governments and, and state um, authorities, certainly in the US, benefit in terms of additional tax revenue. And there are some papers that report um, economic advantages locally. But by and large, the literature on the local economic effects is actually either equivocal or negative, because there might be some 
minor increase in local employment, but these jobs associated with fracking are either very low paid or they're jobs that local people don't have the skills to do. So they bring people in on, on, on both counts. And in terms of the infrastructure and, and, and the maintenance and the servicing, those skills rest elsewhere. So in the States, Texas benefits massively from the shale gas industry elsewhere in, in the US because it's had this huge legacy of expertise in, in, in extractive industries. So their businesses are, are booming because of what's happening in the, um, in, in the Appalachians, for example. And there are a whole host of things that are, uh, are associated with, in, in economic and, and, and social terms, uh, along with nuisance, with development of, uh, of fracking. You know, impacts on property values, mortgages. You know, can you get a mortgage? We get insurance. There's a UK study which, which okay, it, it's an estimate. So you know, it's a guess, but it's an informed guess from the industry that you know it could it could depress property values in adjacent uh, residences by up to thirty percent. The availability of affordable housing, influx of workers, it means that rents will go up, and there's there's evidence in the states that rents have become so expensive in some in some areas, um, service and fracking developments that. Um, you know, food stamps have, have, have increased uh, and the use of food banks has, has increased. So ostensibly it looks as though the economy is doing all right, but, but actually it, it's really not. Um, and of course the things that are associated with you know, sudden increase in principally young and uh, uh, male um, workforce. The highway maintenance the, you know, in the UK we're not going to have the same level of heavy truck movements because of the nature of, of the industry. But in the States, there's one estimate that um, the cost to the local community, the local municipality, of highway maintenance is $23,000 per well per year. $23,000. Now, you know, times N, and you're going to be talking about a significant financial burden on that local community. And of course, they're, they're also left with the legacy of obsolete equipment and contaminated ground when the industry goes and, and you know, find them. And also, you know, these are, they're, they're predominantly rural communities, predominantly rural economies, and the existing economies are by and large incompatible with, with fracking. Yeah, things like tourism and and field sports and, and you know, food. And, and there is there's one interesting paper which shows a decline in milk production in dairy farms associated with proximity to fracking developments. Uh, and those things need to be taken you know, very, very seriously. And persistent, persistent reports of worry and stress. These are 24-hour operations, 24-hour you know, lighting, 24-hour traffic movements, 24-hour use of, of generators. No, no, you know, we'll manage it, we'll, we'll, we'll put screens up and we'll regulate them and, and, and we'll prosecute them if they breach their standards. Well, that's, that's all, all well and good and uh, we're going to have a session on, on regulation. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it does make one a little concerned because um, you know, we, we have heard over and over and over again from the, the, the public health, the independent, the lead independent public health organisation in England 
um, from the government and from the industry that it's going to be okay because we're going to have a gold standard regulation. Uh, you know, some of us are very sceptical about this. Because, well, the whole concept of gold standard regulation. You know, is there a sliding, you know, is there a silver standard, a bronze standard, a ruby standard, a paper standard? You know? So, you know, and if this industry is so safe and so benign and so useful to the economy and such a, a low risk, why does it need a gold standard? Why can't it have the same standard as, as, as everybody? There's only one metric for regulation, that's its effectiveness. It either works, it's a dichotomous variable, either it works or it doesn't. And if it's going to work, it needs appropriate funding. And I haven't seen any confirmation that that is actually going to be the case. The economic implications of this industry for the UK are less than, are less than convincing from my reading of the, of, of the literature. There's little reason to expect that the UK will be immune from the negative aspects. And in terms of the undoubted economic gain at a national and state level in the States, um, it's accepted by the industry and, and by government in the UK that it will not reduce the domestic price of energy. So then we need to ask ourselves, you know, well, really, you, what, is, what is the point? Right, so I'm, 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 I'm wrapping up now. This, this, is, a, 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 this is important. It, it, this is a tiny evidence base <coughs> on which to inform decisions about an industry of, of such importance. It's also very modest in terms of quality. There are still major gaps in our understanding. However, unconventional gas development unequivocally presents an exposure hazard. And you know, bear in mind the difference between risk and hazard. That, that's un unequivocal. It uses and produces toxic chemicals at every stage of development, operation and decommissioning and the distribution and combustion of the gas. There are plausible mechanisms for and occurrences of the release of some of these chemicals. And our view, um, speaking on behalf of my co-authors, yeah, that this absence of a serious portfolio of peer-reviewed data, interpretation of those data, analysis and characterisation precludes a serious risk assessment. You know, the UK, to be fair, the UK government and the, the nascent industry does appear to have, to have um, learnt some of the lessons from the American experience. So, you know, they're talking about you know, community engagement strategy for each development, um, you know, mains water rather than trucking water in, citing these things close to the, the, you know, the, the, the gas distribution system so to reduce the level of, of gas emissions, and an environmental impact assessment on each plant. But an environmental impact assessment doesn't include a health impact assessment. They're two, they're, they're, they're two different things. So despite that, you know, there is plausibility and signals in the literature that, te that tell us that, yes, something could be wrong with this in public health terms. Uh, can we manage and or appropriately fund the regulation of risks to acceptable levels? Um, communities, I suspect, by and large, will be extremely sceptical about that. So our policymakers, planners, investors are faced with a series of pernicious trade-offs and tough choices. That's, that's absolutely clear. 
Uh, while research is developing, it is some way from being able to meaning meaningfully inform those choices. And we have in our midst a, a local political representative who have personal experience of, of the challenge of, of that. And the significance of this responsibility on our um, politicians in particular is heightened by the potential consequences of the industry scaling up after its introduction because once it starts you know, it's not going to stay as, 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 as a handful of, of pilots. Uh, and given, given that and given first principles um, the position of that review supports the MEDACT view that there should be a moratorium on fracking until at least the evidence base matures considerably.